Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Vine for October 30th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Welcome, as always, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, good to have y'all both on. We're getting closer and closer to uh, Election Day, and here in about 20 minutes, we have one of our favorite guests and possibly the guest we have with the most range because he can actually leave, um, you know, our shores and talk about politics outside of America and Evan Scrimshaw, but he's also very versed in American politics as well. So we're going to do a little bit of that. We're going to talk a ton about America. We're also going to uh, touch on the British prime minister situation and uh, the Brazil elections are over 90% in and they think they have a winner. So we'll discuss that with Evan in just a little bit, but we're going to start off the show with a very sad situation. Luckily, it's not as tragic as it could have been, but in addition to the injuries of an 82-year-old man that, um, you know, should never have had any harm put upon him, our democracy took another hit as well, and that was on Friday, um, I guess it was uh, Friday morning or overnight Thursday night, I'm not sure the exact timeline, Um, Paul Pelosi, who is the husband of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, was – the home was broken into, and he was assaulted with a hammer um, tied up. Uh, There's more and more details coming out, Um, and obviously after what the attacker, the assailant, said, he was looking for Speaker of the House Pelosi, um, but he took it out on her husband. Uh, Both of them are – septuagenarians um i don't know that anybody of any age really could you know just comfortably withstand an attack with a hammer but when you get into your 80s you definitely want to be don't want to be taking injuries um for no reason um but just a sad state of affairs because it was politically motivated i I don't think there's um any other way around it uh catherine you you know if you didn't see the news reports you were seeing my text and tim's text that we were sending all around what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's very sad, and I, I certainly hope he's, uh, you know, getting really good medical care and that the family is surrounding him and, you know, taking good care of him. Um, it is. It's, it's shocking. Um, I was kind of surprised that she didn't have more security at her house. Honestly, I would have thought that there would be some kind of, you know, additional, some kind of security that would, you know, prohibit such a attack um but it's terrible and um a, certainly a you know comment on on how um this anger and hatred to, to opposing your opposing party is really you know building and becoming much more dangerous than it's been in the past. At least it feels that way. I could be wrong about that, but it feels like it's more prevalent than it's been in my lifetime. Yes, um, I will comment on this real quick. You said surprise you have more security. I have a funny feeling that, and I don't know, but, but I just, just got reaction. But, you know, the White House is protected. The president obviously lives there. Lives there. The Naval Observatory, that's a government building, and the vice president lives there. And a lot of these places, they're protecting the person that lives there, but they also are used to protecting that place. I bet she has a security detail, but they may not have anticipated the need to protect her home when she's not there, or any speaker for that matter. And now this attack may change that to where they're going to have to protect a lot of high-profile homes, um, if this becomes 
unfortunately not an isolated incident. And given how divided things are, I, I don't know that I would be willing to make that bet that it will be, sadly. Um, Tim, uh, you know, what were your thoughts on this heinous act? Well, first of all, uh, the, the the families of both the president and the vice president are protected. The, I mean, it's in the budget for that to happen. The uh, family of the Speaker of the House or other government leaders is not protected. Only the Speaker herself was protected, and her security detail was with her. I am a little surprised that they did not employ. I mean, they're wealthy uh, people. Yeah, they certainly could afford it, and uh, I'm 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 not sure you know what their thinking was or, or what that was about. Certainly, they probably didn't expect their home to be attacked. But um, and and another thing, Catherine, no, you're not imagining it. In the last six years, the number of active threats against. Um, Anyone involved in politics, not just the president, not just the top leaders, but, I mean, this goes all the way down to election workers, journalists, uh, you, you name it, anybody associated with politics. That number has basically doubled uh, in, in, in threats that, that have been, uh, that have come to the attention of, of uh, outfits like the FBI just in the last six years. Well, what's been the common denominator the last six years? About the time Donald Trump showed up, and now we are in in a period where inflammatory rhetoric is politically um, weaponized. I mean, it, here in our own district up here, we've got a congresswoman that's running a commercial call, call, talking about the communist Democrats and. Nancy Pelosi's making speeches where she needs to be hung and and that sort of thing and and folks like this um uh David DePape the you know who is into all this conspiracy stuff uh you know and, and they get exposed to it in the privacy of their own homes now on uh, social media and uh political violence is just Frankly, a go- growing threat. On my um, Twitter page, you might, you might have uh, no, what y'all might have noticed it, but I I, I, I posted uh, something that John Meacham, the the historian, the professor at Vanderbilt, said Friday on television. He said one of the marks of the end of a republic is the normalization of political violence. And uh, I'm I'm with you, Catherine. I I believe this is just going to get worse Uh, unless they do something about it. And I'm not sure how they put the genie back into the bottle. How do they do that, David? Yeah, I think that's the problem is how you put it back because it would take – and in this case, I think more by and large Republicans, but, I mean, Democrats could help with it, you know, toning down the rhetoric. And like I said, it is more on the Republican side to speak to all, and it would behoove both sides to do it, one, because we'd have a better country and democracy. But let's think about the last attack like this that happened. Steve Scalise, who's um, going to be the number two person in the House or is the number two Republican in the House, he got shot. Um, luckily, he recovered. But we don't want to make this thing, these kind of things normal. This is not a good way to function, and the fact that everybody that gets in public office has to be wealthy enough to have private security, or we decide we have to give them private security or give them public security out of the government funds, that's stuff we can't spend on other things for regular Americans, and then people will resent politicians, and that'll just be a continual cycle. This is just not a good place to be. And um, the saddest thing, I think, out of this is once this happened is so many figures on the right were silent. Now, it was covered all along by you know Fox News. They just talked about, look, the Democrats can't control crime, and like this was just average you know, street crime, which it was not. Um, but then 
you know, Kevin McCarthy, this is a perfect chance for him to take the high road and say something positive. I checked his Twitter account later in the day. Nothing. Now, I won't say that he didn't post something on Saturday or, or today, but the day it happened, when I checked, after lunch, Eastern Standard Time, he hadn't put anything. Donald Trump, I saw a report. He was silent. How many Republicans for over a decade now have used Nancy Pelosi as their number one attack target? And, and so many people could at least show compassion for the situation and talk about how wrong it was and condemn it. And they just passed up this chance, which really hurts them in the eyes of people that want to be civil, but then shows that they really, I think, like a lot of their base being completely deranged, angry at Democrats. Um, Catherine, were you, um, I wouldn't even say surprised, uh, but what, what did you think about the fact that so many Republicans that work with Nancy Pelosi on a daily basis didn't take the chance to at least send some kind of, um, you know, thoughts and prayers. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, Even though they may, they may I mean, have wanted to, but they were, they were probably advised not to. Their base wouldn't like it. So it's, you know, two weeks from, uh, not even two weeks yeah. from election day. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Their base wouldn't like it. But, Tim, I remember a few years ago, you know, in 2008, the, the, the base would attack Barack Obama in ways that weren't about politics, and John McCain would stand up to him. Is there really yeah. not anybody in the Republican Party that will be like John McCain and stand up to just deranged nonsense? Well, anybody that does uh, ends up on the outs right now. I mean, we're talking about a party that uh, two-thirds of the voters don't believe that that Joe Biden is a legitimate president and and that sort of thing. And they're also winning with this thing. I mean, you know, the inflammatory rhetoric, the combative stuff, that's a litmus test now. And if you don't go there, then you're out. Uh, I, I do know, by the way, that McCarthy did um, contact Nancy Pelosi. I heard him say so this morning, and he gave the usual no room for violence in our society anywhere and thoughts and prayers. Um, other people, however, kind of flunked the test. Uh, the governor of Virginia was out on the campaign trail and, and and at a speech said, by the way, I heard that Paul Pelosi got attacked and uh, we're going to send Nancy Pelosi home to look after him, uh, which I thought that was not a good thing to say. And uh, then we've we've had others that, that have said some worse stuff. But uh, I just I just don't know where this. For, for this, we're, we're not even talking about political figures being attacked. Now, guys, we're talking about their family members being attacked. People that have nothing oh, yeah. to do with anything except that they're kin to, the, you know, the person in office. I mean, how do we st- – I mean, boy, <laughs> never thought I'd see nothing like that. Yeah, I that. saw that, that, that's, that statement that Glenn Youngkin made, and I guess what he should have said is if um, – Speaker Pelosi's husband needs somewhere to convalesce and come to the Virginia governor's mansion because I'm never there because um, I'm trying to <laughs> the country with my little vest on because um, I, I don't know how the people of Virginia are feeling about that guy because he, he literally is – every time I see it, he's in another state not named Virginia um, campaigning for somebody. But um, it's such a sad state of affairs, and hopefully – you know, I heard saw the early reports that uh, – um, that he's expected to make a full recovery, and then I heard he got tied up and beaten with a hammer, and I'm like, I hope he does, but he's a one tough 82-year-old if he can make a full recovery um, from that kind of incident. Um, and hopefully he does, and um, it'll be great. Well, um, let's kind of move on to something else before Evan uh, comes on in with us. And the other night, and actually I saw multiple speakers at the, the big rally 
in Atlanta or College Park when President Obama came and spoke. And he, uh, President Obama, was uh, the only one of the speakers. But yes, I guess he had the closest relationship with Speaker Pelosi um, about this attack. And then, you know, he mentioned something not necessarily related to that, but like one of the big things that motivates Republican voters is owning the libs. You know, obviously tax cuts. He kind of mentioned, you know, an asteroid could come to hit the earth, and they'd say, hey, it looks like a good time for the tax cut for the rich. Maybe it'll stop the asteroid. Um, but really gave some speech, uh, some um, a really good speech. And I will say this. I saw clips from his speeches in Michigan and Wisconsin, and I kind of noticed that the tone changed depending on who the opponent was he was speaking about you know, supporting that candidate. And when he went to Wisconsin, it was a really, really tough speech, talking about how Ron Johnson wants to cut Social Security. And there was a little bit of, you know, anger and toughness about, you know, how unfair that is. And I thought, well, you know, Ron Johnson is a very mean-spirited candidate. But, of course, in, in Atlanta, it was kind of like the Obama, Obama comedy hour for part of the speech because he was talking about <laughs> Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker is kind of a joke. Um, so it was very interesting, you know, how he did that. Um, Catherine, did you see clips of any of the speeches, including the one here in Georgia? I didn't see clips, but I read about it. I'm disappointed that he made fun of Herschel Walker. I don't think there's any room for making fun of him. Um, I just, I've been feeling pretty strongly about that lately, but um, it sounded like he really got the crowd going. And, um, you know, I think it's always... I think it's always nice to have a former president um, visit the state. Of course, we have one here all the time, which is great. But there's something extra special about Obama coming to Georgia. Um, It's just, uh, I think he feels very welcome here. And um, he looked like he was very happy. And I think everybody was excited to see him. So I'm glad you got a chance to go. It's always fun to see him. So, uh, I think it was good for the party and good for the election. So good on President Obama. Well, and I will say this. He did frame it in this way. He talked about how, you know, he wouldn't be very good running back. You wouldn't want him to get those last few yards in a football game, but you got to know stuff. I think, actually, I think it was Senator Warnock said, you got to know stuff for this job. So it's framed around that. You're, you're, hey, you're, your you're mom is you're so hard yeah well i want to go ahead and uh right in our welcome on to the show uh for i don't know how many hey times. hey Back i'm fucking your mom and Mr. your Evans right Grimshaw. Now, welcome Evan. a big way i'm fucking your sister right now or... uh how is that i thought i had evan on the line but i'm beginning to wonder if that was evan so um I'll, i don't uh, think so hold up and, and may need to text evan um and so we don't have a seven-second delay. I apologize for that. Uh, Tim, while I try to text Evan and make sure I can get his exact number he's calling in on, um, if you could um, take the high road maybe and talk about these speeches that President Obama gave, not like the gentleman that was on the line who was all the way on the low road. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did see uh, multiple clips. Uh, they showed uh, – a lot of stuff the other night on the local news. They showed a uh, good bit of stuff uh, uh, on the uh, morning talk shows. Uh, I'm glad that President Obama is out there. He's the kind of guy. He He's the one person in the Democratic Party right now that can actually hit the road, I think, uh, do his thing, and the other side doesn't seem to express just blind-running rage uh, at him. Um, So he is the perfect person to go out there. Plus, he can get to the people that we need to come vote. He is very popular, too, with African Americans, obviously, uh, which is very important in the metro area down there. And all over the country, nobody, no Democrat has ever excited the youngest voters 
like Barack Obama, and the polling has been showing that uh, youth vote, uh, the, especially the 18 to 29 age range, has been lagging somewhat. So um, I'm delighted to see him out there. I, I really wish they'd gotten him out there a little earlier. I would have loved to have seen Michelle out there. Um, yeah, that, that's what I was uh, thinking. That Those kind of folks can can get the voters out that we need to get out. And we're going to need every vote we can get, to, uh because, uh, you know, it's historically it, it's tough for the party in power in the midterms and uh, with things as they are and, and with what's at stake more so probably than I ever remember in my lifetime. Um we 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 need these voters out there, and and he's the guy that can get them there for us. Yes, and we hopefully at some point we can talk about some more early vote. I want to try this again. We've got another number on the line. I've texted Evan to see which area code, but I'm going to take a chance that we have Evan on the line now. Um, welcome back to the show to the Cudsey Vine, Evan Scrimshaw. Evan, are you there with us? Well, uh, you know, um, okay, he must be there because he's telling me. He's, he said, yes, he's calling 613, but he didn't answer, so I'll, I won't give any more. Um, so I, I will get Evan on here soon. I guess that, that, that um, rude and disrespectful caller kind of threw us off a bit or threw me off. Um but, yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, get-out-the-vote rally that they were holding. And the one thing I do, I will wonder about a lot of these rallies is just looking at the crowd and how motivated they all were. It looked like, a, you know, out of 5,000 people is what the arena held. Probably 4,500 had probably already early voted. And 4,000 of that early voted on the first day. So let me try this again. Hey, welcome back to the show, Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome, Evan. Evan, I got you on the line with us. Can you hear? Yes. Can you hear me? Excellent. I was I was getting worried. Now we, we had can. a caller just before you that we didn't really want, so that that threw us off no, a no. bit. But we got you here, and that's great because we got a lot to no, talk that about was, tonight. That was me. It just there were some tech issues. Uh, hopefully, the one before you was not you, and just trust yeah, me. Yeah, I don't that think one. it was you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that definitely was not you. <laughs> no, 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 I was the, I was the, I was what? the one who, who had the tech issues two seconds ago. No, this was yeah. earlier. Well, let's go ahead and get in. Let's go ahead and get into this thing. And the first thing I want to do is, you know, we were talking about, hey, can you discuss the Brazil elections? You're like, absolutely, but I don't know if I have results. It appears we do. So I'm going to let you break the news right there and tell us. Um, what it looks like right now in that important Brazil election. So the uh, extremely right-wing proto-fascist Bolsonaro has lost. Um, There was some uh, chicanery today, which, you know, yeah, uh, again, the the (laughs) proto-fascist is important to the understanding of the chicanery, but um, it seems like there was, you know, a, a failed attempt to to suppress the vote, but the um, left wing former president who was thrown in jail on terms of charges um, a few years ago, Lula has been elected. Um, big victory for climate climate rights. You know any hope that South America will be joining in the fight against climate change. So, and I mean just personally, I'm, I'm ecstatic about the result. Um, it's unclear whether Bolsonaro is going to concede gracefully, but we'll see. Yes, um, I guess of democratically elected um, leaders and countries, a few years ago, I think Donald Trump and, and Bolsonaro were the closest to each other. And given how I feel about Donald Trump and most of the listeners in the show, I think anybody that's close to him that you could make an argument is – slightly better or worse, um, getting rid of that kind of person is good. Um, 
anything you can tell us about, like, other than this, these traffic stops and different things that they put up today, as far as, like, how this vote happened, do you have any insights uh, on that? So, uh, I mean, just on the traffic stops, there was some attempts by their um, police to impede people from having free access to the road, slowing them down to try and stop um, heavy areas from being able to get to the polls. In terms of the sort of out- the reasons for the outcome, uh, Bolsonaro did way worse amongst educated, um, socially liberal Brazilians. He did way worse in the cities, even compared to a sort of overall result where he did worse than uh, 2018. Um, it's just another. It's just another election where some on the social, on the on the social left and the economic right are voting more for their social interests than their economic interests, which obviously are pretty relevant in the U.S. of A. as well. Yes. Well, let's move to a total another place in the world, and even though it's not an election because the parliamentary system and and Britain is, is very different in how the ruling party can just call elections. But they have gone through three prime ministers in what seems like since uh, Labor Day. Um, they're, they're on their third prime minister. What, how, explain this situation to someone that's used to holding you know, more traditional elections and, and that being the way party leaders get changed. So Boris Johnson resigned. Um, in disgrace over um, breaking COVID regulations and basically continuing to party as the rest of Britain was locked down, or the rest of England was locked down. Um, he resigned. The Conservative Party picked the replacement. They picked Liz Truss. She becomes PM. The next day, the Queen dies. Ten days later, Britain gets out of their mourning period. They respond to their inflation economic crisis with tax cuts, tax cuts, and more uh, tax cuts, none of which paid for in any way, shape, or form. Uh, economic market said, what are you doing? The pound collapsed, the Tory party vote collapsed, and then basically Tory MPs got rid of this prime minister within that six weeks, basically on the grounds that if they had any chance of not getting destroyed in the next election. They had to they had to get rid of her and go with the guy who lost to her in the um race six weeks ago. Like it's the yes. most catastrophic so, it's the most ca- catastrophic, disastrous like leadership of any major elected like it, there's no precedent for it in the modern era. There's none. Hmm. Yes, and now just kind of telling us um, how long does he have to serve before they have to call an election, and I know they could choose to call elections sooner than that. So the parliament expires at the end of December, like in December of 2024, so they could they could extend an election out until January 2025, but... Britain generally avoids winter elections and um, any government, any, any government that intentionally waits until the absolute last minute to go to an election generally is, is a government that's losing. So probably like the, the, the absolute max would be like 2020, late 2024. Um, realistically, May 2024 is still your most likely election date. Um and that that would be a you know that's a year and year and a half year and eight months. Well, we could always recommend the first Tuesday in November, twenty twenty four, and just have a mega election on both sides of the Atlantic. No, um, no, because, no, because that would put me no, because that would put me in in a like that put me in a mental institution. Having to cover two elections on both okay. sides of the border? No, no, thank you. Yeah. And then Justin knows maybe his numbers will be up and he say, Hey, let's get in on this and have the Canadian elections at the same time and just push in overload. No, I, I don't think they would do that either. 
Um, but let me go ahead and get back into American elections. But you, like I said, you have more range than anybody we have on, so I want to take advantage of that. So let's get back into America. I had kind of a global question before Tim and Catherine get into specific states, and that is um, I saw the theory today, but I've been kind of thinking it already, that we're seeing a lot more conservative polls, uh, Trafalgar, um, Insider Advantage. They're doing more polls than a lot of your independent sources this time, and we always know that pollsters like to herd. So is it possible that some of the tightening we're seeing in the polls across the country or improvements for Republicans, I should say, the tightenings where they were behind, is because Republican pollsters or conservative pollsters releasing a lot of polls and then folks trying to not be too far off their numbers and skewing to the right then? So partially that's true. Um, Conservatives are flooding the zone with polls. Right. Like that's, there, there's a reason why people are now talking about, like, is Washington Senate in play? No, it's not. But the reason is that the last like four or five polls have been from Republican leading pollsters. And they're doing this to try and create a sense of momentum. Democratic pollsters did the same thing in 2020. It's why we got so many Jamie Harrison's in a tight race in South Carolina polls. And, you know, um, they're trying to project strength and they're trying to project momentum to try and rally conservatives, you know, discourage Democrats and try and in effect create their pulled outcome by discouraging Democrats from coming out because hey, you're you're not gonna win. You know, you're you're barely winning Washington. You're you know, you're losing Georgia. There's been what, four partisan polls of Georgia in the last like ten days? Like no. I'm sorry, like, they're trying to create momentum. The national pollsters, the independent, you know, New York Times, Suffolk, whatever, they're overcorrecting from last time because they have egg on their face. And they're, to the extent that they are still getting paid, right? If you're Suffolk, you want, you want to keep that USA Today contract. If you miss low, like, if you underestimate Republican strength again, USA Today is probably going to fire you. They're probably not going to pay for your polls either at all or as much, right? If you're, you know, if you're Emerson, you can't you can't have the Hill stop paying you for polling, right? You need to keep your media contracts, and so you can't miss low on Republicans again. And so you have people overcorrecting, you have Republicans flooding the zone, and you have Democratic pollsters who. Like, I know for a fact they're not getting the exact same results that – like, are not getting similar results, at least in some cases, as the published polls. But they don't want to release the poll because no one will believe them or care if they do, right? Because no one believes any of the Democratic internal pollsters this year because they did just get 2020 so laughably wrong. And so if you're a you know, House incumbent or you're a you – know, if you're Raphael Warnock, there's no point in releasing a poll from your pollster – because no one's going to believe you. So, yeah, the Republicans have flooded the zone. Yes. Well, that's a very interesting insight. Of course, Seven, I could ask you so many more questions, but Tim and Catherine both want to ask questions as well. So I'm going to pass it to Tim. I'll pass it to Catherine. We'll see what time's left at the end of that. Tim? Uh, good evening, Evan. Thank you for being with us tonight. What the um, coming on? One uh, one state that I'm going to start with is just south of our border here. And that's the state of Florida. Now that's one state that it appears has been getting away further and further from Democrats in the last couple of cycles, and it is looking in compilation polling at least like the Senate race might be a high single digit and the governor's race might be a, a low double digit race that that's a lot are we approaching the point where Florida is less competitive for democrats even than say a state like Texas is republicans will win Florida by more than they win Texas next time I will uh-huh. I will like any amount of money I will put on that Florida 
His chalk pool of retirees and soon-to-be-retirees groups said disproportionately vote Republican um, because they are less likely to hold socially liberal views. Because even if you're – because if you're older, you just did not grow up with the same values. You just didn't grow up in the same society. You're more likely to hold, you know, recalcitrant views on uh, key social issues. So it's a state that's not getting substantially socially more socially liberal because of uh, migration flows. Um, the state Democratic Party is a goddamn disaster. No one mm-hmm. – and then the thing is the Democrats, national Democrats, don't need the state. They don't need the state, and they don't particularly want the state anymore, right? Like, um, we're not – Democrats are unlikely to beat Ruth Scott next year. They're not going to beat Marco Rubio, and they're not going to beat Ron DeSantis. Um, mm-hmm. By gerrymandering the state so efficiently, the House, House Democrats haven't spent a dime in the state. Um, and mm-hmm. so you're getting to a you're getting to a point where Democrats are just going to treat it like a red state because you have it's it's the combination of very expensive media markets and bad mm-hmm. trends because you can you can justify spending in Texas because it's gone from being like a Romney plus nineteen state to Trump plus five and a half you can't mm-hmm. justify spending in Florida it's going the wrong way it's too expensive to make a play you can't fix it for three million bucks and it's it's like a nice to have, but not a need to have. Democrats have many, many paths to, to 270 that don't that don't include it. They will mm-hmm. continue to have many paths to, to 270 without it. And if you're looking at Senate seats to go get, I'd much rather Democrats spend one percent of what it would take to fix the Florida Democratic Party to go supercharge the Alaska Democratic Party, or put 10 percent of it and go do it in Montana, states that mm-hmm. are moving the right way, and where your comparative bang for buck is substantially higher than Florida. Okay. So another state, and this one is just south of you, that has a lot of people scratching their head is Ohio. Now, I know we are running a great Senate candidate, and, you know, it's a given that the Republicans are not, but still, it's Ohio. Is that race as close as the polls say, or, or is that fool's gold for Democrats this year? Fool's gold. I really wish it wasn't, but it is because Ohio polls have been consistently really bad. And the, and the difference uh-huh. even between, say, an Ohio and a Michigan or an Ohio and a Wisconsin is Wisconsin polls have been bad in the two presidential years, in the in the post-Obama mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. Um they were they were they were bad in sixteen. They were bad in twenty. But they were like fine in twenty eighteen. Ohio polls were still really bad in 20, 2018. They thought Richard Cordray was going to win um, the governorship against Mike Dewine. He lost obviously. Underrands polls by about five and a half points. Like that's the problem. Tim Ryan, like you could maybe say he's up right now. It depends on the pollster. Depends on how you you treat you know internal polls, whatever. But like if it's a rough tie. Democrats probably lose by size. The undecideds will break. The undecideds will break right. We won't get quite the amount of support that the polls say with working class white voters. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, fortunately for Democrats, although you could say fortunately for national Democrats, uh, Donald Trump's going there like two nights before the election or a night before the election or whatever. So mm-hmm. you're probably not going to – because like the way Ryan wins is basically just like Trump – like Trumpian working class whites just kind of forget the election's happening. But if Trump goes there the day before the election, you're probably not just going to win by accidentally getting a low turnout, like a lower turnout election. So now it's mm. cool. Okay. So that being done, now I want to go across the country and talk to you about a state that appears, at least according to the polls, to be a dead even state in both the U.S. Senate race and the governor's race. That's the state of Nevada. Now, I know you've been looking at some of the early voting numbers. Where do you think Nevada stands right now? I think Democrats are, I think Democrats are the ever so slight favorites. That is a controversial opinion, I'm aware but the polls in Nevada have gotten better for Democrats in the last little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the last good poll we had had Democrats ahead. 
and this is the big thing for me is Democrats like we're we're tracking for something fairly close to 2018 level turnout. It, it might be a bit higher than 2018, and Democrats mm-hmm. have a 2018-ish lead on mail votes right now. Now, it's not great that there's only been a bit of mail, that there's been less mail the last couple of days, but, you know, it's a weekend. It's entirely possible that that's, you know, that's a, that's a statement of capacity, not a statement of um, the Democrats don't want to turn out. And fundamentally, Republicans have gotten close in Nevada a few times, but they generally don't win it. Polls in Nevada almost always understate Democrats. And mm-hmm. uh, Adam Laxall, like the thing is, the key for Republicans to win Nevada is they have to overperform with Hispanics. And the mm-hmm. problem is that we have a bunch of national pollsters who have done Hispanic-only polls that basically say Democrats are going to get a roughly 2020-level performance with Hispanics. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, it's hard to see how Laxalt can win. He can get close. He can get really close. And same with um, Joe Lombardo, who's running for governor against Steve Sisolak, the incumbent. But mm-hmm. it's, it's the, the, the math to get Republicans close is easy. The math to actually mm-hmm. get them above a Democrat is hard. And I just don't, as of right now, gun to my head, if, you, if it's a toss-up state and the early vote doesn't have a clear definitive like story to tell, my gut says to my in Nevada ties go to Democrats, so I'm going to trust okay. Democrats. All right, going to go to one more place with you, and this time we're going to look at a place where you would think Democrats would be easily winning, and again, it's a head scratcher. And, and you you made an allusion to this a lot with the state of Washington, but right there beside you is the state of New York, and absolutely they have shown polls of some tightening in the governor's race. And I just personally cannot latch on to that in my head. There, there's no way that's true, is it? No, absolutely no way. And we know why, because whatever we think of Kathy Hochul, Hochul and whatever uh-huh. we think of the campaign Lee Zeldin's running, um, the thing about all the polls that have pulled New York governor is they also pulled the Senate race and they have Chuck Schumer winning by like somewhere in the like 12 to 20 range. Uh-huh. This is a guy who routinely wins by 35 to 45. Uh-huh. Schumer is not going to just randomly only win by 15. So we know uh-huh. the polls are wrong. And if we just assume that Zeldin gets like that, the, that the polls like, relative positioning is correct, right? That Zeldin's going to gonna outrun the Republican Senate candidate by 10, 15 points. Great. Schumer wins by 30. Hochul wins by 15. It, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it's not close. It's not at all. And it's the same all way that right. we don't, we don't believe Democratic, we don't believe polls that have Democrats winning in Oklahoma, and we shouldn't believe polls that have Republicans in striking distance in New York. It's just not true. All right. With that, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, Evan. Thanks for being on with us tonight. Thank you for the update on Brazil. My brother lives in Brazil, so I'm sure he's thrilled with those results because he was moaning and groaning about it the last time I spoke to him. So thank you for that. Um, I want to talk about Georgia, of course. What, you know, we keep seeing these polls up and down, Warnock, Walker, Abrams, Kemp. I mean, the Abrams, Kemp polls haven't been that different. But what do you think is going on? Is it like what you were talking about earlier with the Republican pollsters and the um, nobody wants to say a Democrat's going to win? Or what do you think is going on here? Uh, National, like good independent national pollsters are probably going to be polling Georgia a lot this week. And so, because like last week we got one Monmouth poll, but like in terms of like you know independent polls, we had we didn't get any in Georgia. And I think that's because Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona—that's the Senate. Like that's control of the Senate, and then you know that's the map of like truly competitive states. Everyone's just going to pull Georgia the final week. They're going to all. I think we're going to get a flood of good, high-quality Georgia polls this week. Um, Democrats are going to win. 
Democrats are, I'm feeling extremely good about Democrats or about Raphael Warnock at least Um, because Joe Biden won Georgia uh, with an electorate. So we have all the early vote data and you can actually project Georgia elections pretty well from the early vote. Um, And in 2020, about 28% of the early vote electorate was black. Democrats, Joe Biden won by, you know, two tenths of a percent. Um, right now it's, it's 30. We had souls to the polls today, um, which the, 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 those numbers are not in the, the math yet. And so even if this, even if the weekdays are not great for Democrats, we're still going to have a blacker electorate than we had in November of 2020. And then the only other way Republicans could win, if that's true, would be if, uh, Herschel Walker outruns, uh, Donald Trump with white voters and specifically educated degree holders in the Atlanta Metro. And I just don't think the guy who is credibly accused of killing, of threatening to kill his wife and his child is going to be the candidate that gets, that could turn back the clock in North Fulton, Cobb, Gwinnett, uh, Cherokee, Forsyth, et cetera. But, but do you think those people will vote for Warnock or will they just skip it? Um, I think enough of them will will vote for Warnock because Walker isn't just like garden variety bad. He's like actively pretty abhorrent um, to these people. Um, but I mean, here's the thing: even if even if a bunch of them did just leave the Senate vote blank, that's still a yeah. relative oh, yeah. win for that's us. Fine. But we would obviously prefer yeah. the war them to, to vote for Warnock. But no, no, white voters are gonna white voters are gonna vote more heavily for Warnock than for than they did for Biden. We're going to probably have a blacker electorate by election day than uh, Warnock did, than the Biden did in 2020. And if those two things are true, then the only question is, does Warnock stall out at like 49.5% of the vote, or does he break 50 on the day, which I think he's going to. And what do you think about the youth vote? There's been a lot of talk about this. And I'm... uh... I'm sort of in uh, disagreement with my co-hosts about this. Um, I feel like there's a rumble of activity um, with the youth vote here, at least in Metro Atlanta, that isn't really being recognized. Like it's sort of on the down low. And I'm just wondering if what you think about that. Like, do you think there's what 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 is your thought about this youth vote? Like 18 to 30. So I think it's I, – I think the thing is, I think in, in, in Georgia and Atlanta specifically, it's probably fair I, – I actually think it'll, it should, would be fairly effective for two reasons. One, you have a lot of young people who are um, recent graduates and, uh, you know, degree – like education is correlated to sort of how much attention you pay, and attention you're paying generally correlates to how likely you are to vote and to remember there's an election. So that's pretty good. Second thing is University of Georgia is actually like fully in in session this year. Um, and then all the other uh, schools across the the state as well and not in their like weird COVID kind of semi-operative, right. but also kind of like not really that operative existence um, of 2020. And the third thing, which I think is completely – no one has talked about this, but I do think matters on the on the margins and given – you know, how close the state is right now. Georgia used to be a state where, because obviously uh, you can only vote once, but you can, you have the right if you are an out-of-state student to vote either in the state that you are going to school in or the state that you live in. And Georgia used to be the state where if you went to school in a swing state, but you lived in Georgia, you know, you would, you, you would optimize your vote to the vote to the closest state. Now Georgia is the state where if people have the choice, young voters, have the choice they're going to vote in georgia which i think you know might it be worth ten thousand votes sure but ten thousand votes might be the difference between Mordock winning outright or us having to all do this again in december well huh, that's a really interesting uh point i hadn't thought about that and uh very that's uh, is there any way to track that no, unfortunately, it's. Do just, we track it? We don't. Yeah. No, unfortunately, it's just anecdotes of. 
of people trying to be be tactical and optimal about not wasting their vote. Well, that's a really interesting point. Thank you for that. I'm going to pass it to David now. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Yep. Yes, and I kind of want to you know talk more about that. And I'll say this: um, I am just wanting to know more about the youth vote. I'm not necessarily. I think it could come out. Uh, you know, the youth voters in a bigger numbers. Now, I will say this: Clark County has been one of the worst counties in Georgia for early vote. Only 66.7 percent of the vote that came out in 2020 is out yet, and that's compared to some counties that have 200. 172 percent, things like that. So um, Athens is not coming out yet in the numbers they should. Now, they could come out in the last week, and John DeLaVolpe, who's a friend of the show, who's an expert on these voters, he says that um, that the last week of early voting is when the youth vote really comes out in bigger numbers um, comparatively. So that, that could be some good news for places like Clark County. So that's just some more information to lay in. Now, I noticed you mentioned a lot about the Senate race, not much about the governor's race in Georgia. Do you think that that could change from the polls, or is it just kind of too big a gap for Stacey Abrams? I think Stacey's in real trouble. I just – I don't think – the problem is that Warnock is a very safe vote, right? He is he is the safe vote against the um, craziness of Herschel Walker. Um the problem is that Abrams has been Kemp, Brian Kemp has painted himself as the safe option against you know this untested uh, you know gubernatorial candidate whose you know highest office she's ever held was you know state minority leader in the House. Like, unfortunately, fortunately in a sense for Democrats and unfortunately for the governor's races, Democrats like Georgians generally feel pretty good about Georgia. It you know things are not perfect and. Um, certainly, you know, if you're a woman trying to get reproductive health care, it's not great, but the economy's doing pretty well. You know, taxes are still low. Kemp's, you know, hasn't made a big mistake, you know, in a while. Like, people are pretty satisfied and pretty contented electorates generally don't toss incumbents out. And when you have an electorate full, where the where the swing vote in the electorate is, High information, educated voters, they they are going to split their tickets, and they are the kind of voters who are going to know that Brian Kemp is responsible for their low state taxes, and you know, and you know the sort of like you know good economic conditions. Um, but they're also going to know that. But they're also going to know that they don't want Raphael Warnock, or uh, they don't want they do want Raphael Warnock. They don't want Hirsch Walker in the Senate. Because Walker is a um, crazy person, I'm just going to say that, so I don't get sued. Yes, and let me ask you about another state that, because you mentioned Arizona being a very um, competitive state with the Senate, and obviously the governor's race too. Um, the polls have tightened in Arizona, but that could be an impact of voter screens. Not that people have decided that Blake Masters is not weird or that they've found some negative qualities about Mark Kelly, but what's your take on what's going on with Arizona? Uh, I think Arizona's the same thing in terms of, like, meaningful movement. Um, So part of what's happened is that, uh, yeah, I think Blake Masters has consolidated some people who were always going to vote Republican who were undecided, but – a lot of the movement this week is not either low quality bolsters or Republican bolsters um, showing the tightening. I assume, given not even so much for the center race, but given the uh, given Carrie uh, Lake and uh, Katie Hobbs, I feel like a lot of pollsters are going to just do the rotation of those of the four big center races, or or maybe the three and not Nevada. I you know I expect. Most pollsters, you know, he'll be up, Mark Kelly will be up, you know, on average, five-ish going into election day. He probably wins. Like, he wins if the floor doesn't fall in on Democrats, and I'm sort of – I think that the choices pollsters are making means that Democrats might underperform. Like, I don't think there's going to be a massive floor under the polls for Democrats. I think the polls are going to represent pretty close to their 
to their floor outcome. Yes. And then final Senate race I had to ask you about, um, and that's in Pennsylvania. The polls have definitely tightened there as well. Um, even in the face of the um, information about Dr. Oz and testing on dogs and euthanizing dogs, um, and then, of course, at the same time, John Fetterman's recovery has been slower than some may have anticipated, although I'm not really sure how that makes somebody else's positions more tenable. But what's your take on the situation in the Keystone State? Um, I'm, I'm very much in a wait and see on the Keystone State just because – we have two polls since the debate. One of them was a WIC Insights poll, which I don't think they're a, like a sponsored by Republicans, but they certainly have a, a fairly sizable Republican uh, like has effect. And then the other is Insider Advantage, you know, a Republican bolster. Um, WIC actually had Fetterman doing a point better than pre-debate. Um, Insider advantage went from a tie to Fetterman or to Oz plus three, but like we're dealing with two polls from not particularly good pollsters. I just think every every pollster is just waiting for waiting for the national poll. I will say though, the fact that the New York Times, Siena, they released a um, district poll of Pennsylvania eight, so up in the northeast, uh, sort of Scranton and some Scranton, and then up to the border of New, of New Jersey. Um, and Cartwright was winning by like six or eight or something, like sizable margins, which is incongruent with the idea that Democrats in Pennsylvania are looking at some like imminent collapse. Um, if Cartwright's winning a district, handily winning a district that, uh, that Donald Trump won. And again, I just, we don't we, – we have so little information because every – most pollsters are waiting until the final week to release their final polls. And so all we have are these bits of information from bad Republican biased pollsters. And a, lot of, and a lot of these narratives that have come out in the last week, they might be true and they might be, you know, a load of, you know, a load of bleep. And, you know, this week we're going to get final polls from everybody and I think – We'll have a a better sentence. Yes. Well, we'll be following you in this final week, but let me just kind of close with this. In addition to you telling where everybody can read you, um, is there any state that we didn't talk about that no one's watching that should be? Uh, Not particularly, mostly because I am am on the, like, general – like, I have the view that the map is fairly condensed. In terms of like races and outcomes at this point, so no, we touched on everything that I was sort of like looking for and and waiting to talk about. Um, you can read my general politics thoughts over at scriptsonscripted.substack.com. Read my political betting and NFL content over at thelines.com. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be writing a like huge final week betting preview for the Senate. Um, like deep dives on every race uh, or, or the big four center races. Uh, so you can read that. It's, it's a betting preview, but it, it's really just race previews with some probabilities. Um, so yeah, you can do that over at thelines.com and then follow me on Twitter at Scrimshaw. I tweet everything out and I will be uh, making sure that anybody wants to read my stuff. They can, they'll, they'll know where to find it. Yes. Well, I tell you what, um, we're going to be reading all your information about the election. We're going to give you a few days to rest, and then we're going to expect that Atlanta Falcons story on the lines about how they keep, um, you know, fooling the Vegas odds makers uh, this season. Did they, win, did, they win, did they win today? I, uh, I they did. I saw the, yeah, they did. Yeah, I, I, I saw the I saw the missed I, I saw the missed extra point, which kept you guys in the game, and then the. My TV channel cut me back to the coming to the late game, so I didn't I didn't see the end of it. But yeah, how about for you guys? I'll go ahead and leave you with this: the, the right before the NFL season opened, we had um, Logan Phillips of Race the WH, and I called it. I said the Falcons going to be surprised this year, and so far I've been proven right eight weeks into the season. But Evan, thanks I mean, so much for all this great information. We're going to continue to read you. 
And then, of course, we're going to have to have you on at some point after the election to tell us what happened since, of course, all of us right now are just speculating. Yeah, no, hopefully uh, hopefully this year operations will do better than last year. So, uh, yeah, and hopefully we don't have to you know, have me on for a Georgia runoff preview because I would like to avoid that just for my own. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to take uh, Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker to Thanksgiving as the ad showing. <laughs> oh, yeah, you have to deliver the ad. So, yeah, you have even more incentive than me. But anyway, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Evan. Thank you, Evan. All right. Evan Scrimshaw, we just got just a minute or two left. Um, let's kind of talk about the youth vote since, Catherine, you alluded to it. And it's one of the things we've been wanting to talk about. So, Catherine, you're more bullish on the um, youth vote, and you kind of gave a little bit talking to Evan. Tell us anything else about that, and then we'll let Kit, Tim get Tim's take. Well, I, I think I said I, I just think that there's like a, a – a lot of activity going on that we are not that us old people aren't seeing. That's, I mean, I I say us old people. I'm referring to myself. I'm not referring to you. Yeah. Because um, you but, know we've uh, been talking our ticks and snapping our chats, and we're down with it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, <laughs> well, Tim, your, your take on the youth vote. Well, you know, you, you know that uh, I, I, I'm a little concerned about it. They they haven't voted so far. They're running at about six point seven percent of of the uh, total vote in Georgia is voters between the ages of eighteen and twenty nine. And I hope Delavope is right, and they vote at higher levels because uh, if if they're going to vote even at 2018 levels we need nationally for the youth vote to be about 17 percent of the total vote if they are democrats are going to have a good night in the senate and they're going to blunt uh any wave talk in the house if they don't vote however because they are among our biggest supporters we got a problem and uh, so I'm a, I'm a little skeptical. I hope Della Vope is right. And the second week of early voting, or this last week of early voting, is when they really come out. You you quoted Clark County, and a lot of that is because they haven't voted yet. So, yeah, hope you guys are right. That, you know, there's yeah, there's mail-in vote. You know, because if if you are off to college, even in the same state, you could, you know, mail in your ballot, and that might not be counted. And, and of course, people, you know, when you're younger, you you big on due dates, and you turn in things right at the due date. So it may be that even some of these younger voters, even the more progressive, vote on election day even, drive home because they forgot to, you know, do their absentee. Because here's the thing, even though a lot of folks like to vote early, and it's a great option for because of what happened today in Brazil, because you can't do a 14-day, you know, traffic, you know, siege, whatever it is. Um, but that, but it's okay to vote on election day. It's not like you did anything wrong if you don't election day. I mean, you still can. Um, so we may see more people vote there. Also, you know, I think everybody hears you vote and they think, oh, well, they all vote Democratic. Like they're 90-10 voters. They're like 57-30 voters. So what? Could, right. What if it's the 57 are super motivated, and then the 30 are not as motivated. Um, and then those voters become 65, 20 voters or something of actually who shows up. So there's a lot of dynamics, and the beautiful thing is we can speculate and have theories, and then after the election, especially if we learn a little more, get exit polls, get more information, we can put together what happened, um, and we'll know a little more. and. You know, John Del Volpe, he has been confident even through today, and so he's putting a lot of, um, you know, stock in, in what he feels and believes. And so I, I'll say this. He's not hedging his bets. Well, next week in our final show before the election, uh, we're going to have Tom Jensen, who I believe was our final guest two years ago. It may have been our final guest two years before that. It's kind of become a tradition 
and he's going to give us those, hopefully a lot of those last polls Evan was talking about. Tom's going to know about all of them. Tom might even know about some he's, his firm's done and some numbers he may not can give us all the who's and what's who paid for it, but we might still glean a little information off of that. So that's going to be a really insightful show just two days before, you know, true election day happens. So until then, it's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. Hi, everybody. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.